You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Several years ago, I spoke to Alex Crawford from Sky News. I asked her to come to Cape Town and talk to me about her experiences in Libya and other matters as well. She agreed to do so, and we had a fascinating afternoon and a fascinating interview. She was the first journalist to go into Colonel Gaddafi's Tripoli compound, his lavish Tripoli compound, and she reported upon those extraordinary events with me. Here's this from the strictlybusinesspodcast.com archives. I was going to come up with a highly convoluted introduction to my next guest, but then I read her CV and I read her recent achievements and I read through all the recent press clippings from newspapers around the world about her achievements and I thought, well, that's half the interview gone already. So all I'm going to do is say in the studio with me is the world's most famous journalist. It's Alex Crawford from Sky News. Alex, uh, thanks so much for popping down to Cape Town just to see us. We feel very honoured. There's so much to talk about, but let's start with the most recent stuff. What made you go into Tripoli with the rebels when people from the BBC and everyone else was holed up in the Rickson Hotel drinking Red Bull and eating pistachios? <laughs> well, I never saw any of them um, very late on. I saw them earlier on in the day, and I don't know why they didn't go in. I think maybe we were in the right place. Um, it was Certainly the timing was absolutely spot on because we managed to coincide with a whole group of um, a big convoy from Misrata who were obviously very well tooled up. They were extremely determined and they were out heading into Tripoli that night, whatever, whatever happened. And we tagged along with them and it just felt like the right thing to do. We were really just following our noses. So it was instinct. I mean, the same sort of instinct that said, yes, come down to Cape Town and have a chat with Newscape. The same sort of instinct said, yes, we should go into Tripoli now. But there were dangers. There were, you were fearful that perhaps the Gaddafi, the Gaddafi forces would be there to repel the rebels. But eventually that, of course, didn't occur. I think there were obvious dangers. I mean, even the rebel soldiers, the civilians who tagged along with them, um, were all very edgy and very fearful about what was in front of them. Mm. Um, and it just never transpired. And I think they were as stunned as we were when, when we arrived in Tripoli and there wasn't this mighty force. There were no Gaddafi army. There were no Gaddafi people at all. They were all very welcoming of the, this rebel army that was co coming into town. And that relief, of course, manifested itself in extreme joy. I mean, I've said before on this show that I've never seen such joy, such ecstasy, such relief. I mean, years and years and years of oppression, plus a couple of hours of realisation that there was no opposition, just came out in this flood of relief. And it was actually quite moving. It was very moving. And I think it was very difficult not to get caught up with all the euphoria because it was, it was a wave. It was a tsunami of excitement and, mm. uh, and relief. You know, people, grown men were coming out. Uh, I have this particular vision of this man right in front of me now coming up to the pickup truck that we were on. And he was, he was very sweaty through, as everyone was that night, because it was very hot. It was, you know, 38, 40 degrees. And people were scared. They, mm. Even the ones that were coming out onto the street didn't know whether this was going to work or not. You know, we were on the edges of Tripoli just walking in and this, uh, driving in. And the, this man was crying with relief and throwing his arms round um, the soldiers, as did, as did many people. And even women, for the first time, 
uh, that I'd seen in the conflict were coming out, uh, groups of them. Uh, I remember them all, a, 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 a group of about six of them all standing together with dressed in their all black clothing, trilling, making this sort of noise with their, you know, yeah. I can't do it, but in, in, in excitement and joy and welcome because yeah. they were so excited to see this huge convoy. And it was a really, really big one because there were so many vehicles the entrance into Tripoli was gridlocked. We were hardly moving at all because there were so many vehicles and so many people coming out of the, their homes and their houses, even holding children. And this cacophony of noise, all this firing as they were um, sort of celebrating and, and announcing their arrival as well. And we'd first gone in and they'd shut off all the lights. The, none of the cars had lights. None of the street lights were on. Yeah. I don't know because of power cuts or because someone had, had cut them off, but it was dark. And w one of the cameramen tried to light a cigarette and the soldiers said, no, 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 switch, turn, no lights, no lights, because they were quite... Uh, worried about what was in front of them. and Perhaps then all, snipers and seeing a light exactly, that they would be targeted. All day we'd been encountering snipers in that 30-mile road from mm. Zawir to Tripoli. There'd been fights all the way along with uh, you know people being shot at uh, and just they were fighting and being stopped by the snipers. But unbeknown to us, they've been pushed further and further back. They were retreating, basically. And I think that night they just left Green Square entirely. How hated was Gaddafi? I mean, you saw this outpouring of emotion. He must have been a real terror. I think he was hated and feared in equal measure. I mean, there was a huge amount of fear. Even when Zawir had fallen just uh, before, a couple of days before Green Square in Tripoli went, uh, people were too scared to go on television with it showing their faces. And when I was in Zawir in March, I know that a number of people, after we'd interviewed them, um, were arrested, imprisoned. At least 5,000 people were rounded up in Zawir itself. Um, whole families were, they used to go into people's houses and round them up. Uh, and then they would disappear into jails uh, to be interrogated. Mm. There was a, a real fear of the regime. And I think that fear still exists as long as the key Gaddafi members of the family are, are not traced. Yes, indeed. I mean, once they have been traced and once people realise that they are either not in Libya and therefore have no power or are dead, then the relief will be palpable. But mm. of course, then the struggle for power starts. But that's a problem for the future. After you'd gone in with the rebels and those famous scenes where you had the helmet on and you said, it's, I haven't got this helmet on, this crash helmet on, because I'm afraid of being shot. It's just because there's so much celebratory gunfire into the sky that the bullets can come down and cause me damage. After you'd done that and you'd gone into Tripoli, you met no resistance from the Gaddafi forces. Then was it the next day that the compound fell and you were the first journalist in there? The, we went to, to bed very late that night. It was a Sunday night and we went to bed very late because we'd been in Green Square. We had about a couple of hours sleep mm. and we ended up in the hospital that night because we left the square thinking um, that it was over, basically. There was, there was so many people out on the streets. It was all very um, comfortable. We started heading back. Um, down the road, very short distance. In fact, we were heading towards the Rixos to try and see our colleagues there who'd been there for about three weeks. Just to reiterate that the Rixos Hotel is the hotel where foreign journalists were housed and they could be monitored, I suppose, by the Gaddafi yes, forces. Yes, and there were still, uh, unbeknown to me, there were still lots of Gaddafi minders there. 
uh, but we thought we'd go and see them and see if they were all right. And en route, uh, we stopped at the hospital because we saw some uh, casualties arriving. And uh, my cameraman, Gowan McClucky, uh, jumped out, ran inside to, to see what was going on. We stayed outside with our pickup truck because it was now our only transport out of there. And this firefight broke out outside the hospital. Uh, a man was shot in front of the hospital. Two doctors were, were shot at inside the hospital quadrangle. And one doctor was shot through the head as he was taking uh, a casualty in. Uh, so we ran ourselves inside of the hospital. The pickup truck disappeared, um, never saw it again. And we stayed in the hospital. When we woke up a couple of hours later, things were very, very different. The mm. doctors were clearly very on edge. The situation mm. had entirely changed and it was very fragile, very insecure. There was uh, shells were hitting the hospital walls that day. Um, and people were terrified inside. They couldn't get supplies in and out, and things were very fragile. That night, Safe Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi's son, turned up at the Rixos, said they still had control of parts of the city, they still had loads of support, and that people should rally round them. And I think that propelled the uh, opposition fighters to go on to the compound, which they did on Tuesday. He addressed foreign journalists, didn't he? Yeah, he gathered up the, the foreign journalists in the Rixos, um, took them back to the compound, mm. uh, delivered a speech where he had um, some a body of people all waving green flags and said that they were still in control. Colonel Gaddafi was still in Libya and still very much in power and that people should fight off these um, opposition fighters. Right, after that, the compound story, because I know we've spoken earlier uh, off-air that you've, you were there and then suddenly uh, one of the three walls, I think there was uh, three walls guarding this giant compound, which is about uh, three, four square miles or six or seven square kilometres, whatever it is, and suddenly you found out that somebody had broken in and then you took your chance and in you went as well. Mm. Well, it, uh, we'd spent most of the day outside and one of the most... Um disturbing in uh, memories I have of that day is that we were out we were 50 meters from the outside of the wall and um, my one of the cameramen Jim Foster was looking around the corner and the, there was a man right next to him who was shot through the head mm. and his, his um, it, there was so much blood on Jim I thought Jim had been shot Garwin my other cameraman was just behind him and a lot of this man's brain matter ended up on his camera. And it was, he wasn't actually even shot by his sniper. He was shot by a fellow opposition fighter because they were, it was so chaotic and so um, disorganized and they were so uh, frantic that things were going off all over, all over the place. And um, at that stage, my, um, my editor said, we think you're too close. It's far too dangerous. You need to get back. And we actually, we pulled back and sort of took a bit of a breather at that stage. And the, the opposition fighters told us we've broken through the north gate. We were actually at the south gate. Mm. And I didn't believe them at first because everything was so chaotic. I couldn't really contemplate them being able to break through this really secure, the most secure part of the capital. Um, but we decided we, we needed to go and check it out. So we raced round there, a mixture of following um, rebel fighters. People were very welcoming and giving us lifts. We went to the West Gate by accident, which was very 
very insecure. There was lots of fighting and they said, no, no, you can't. It's not ready now. But you go around that other side, you, you'll, you'll get in. And we walked around and there was this flood of people going in and coming out. Um, it was just, uh, it was like open house. And the, the main wall was just smashed down, absolutely smashed down. And we just kept on uh, walking in, well, running in. And suddenly we found ourselves in, fu- in front of that very iconic statue, which probably everyone remembers of the clenched fist holding the American fighter. And people were just going bonkers in there. Looting, having fun, genuine anger. I mean, I, I saw a picture of a bust of Gaddafi being kicked, uh, symbolically kicked by people. What did you find when you went in there? Did you go into the inner sanctum, to his rooms, to his tunnels, to his bedroom, Gaddafi's that is? Most of the time I stood outside and Mm. watched them. uh, We were broadcasting live to show people what was happening. And it was, they were just, as you said, doing a mixture of crazy things. There was standing, there was huge amount of um, victory, there's a real smell, a real feeling of vic- victory. They were mm. tramping, trampling all over their dictator's home. Yes. And just that, it was incredibly symbolic. You know, standing on top of the statue near where he delivered so many of his speeches. They, they set fire to the tent where he'd uh, entertained world leaders. Uh, the, the, the building where he'd um, entertained Jacob Zuma had been already destroyed by NATO jets, absolutely mm. flattened. Mm. There were you, nothing there, just a pile of rubble. Um, all this was in, massively symbolic for... Symbolic um, desecration of yeah, their, their leader's it, property. It, it was like this was really putting to bed the lie that he was in charge. Because yeah. if he was in charge, you, the, all these hundreds of people wouldn't be in there trampling all over. They were rifling through everything and taking whatever they could. I mean, in some cases, just wanton vandalism. Um, you know, they, they went, uh, we saw lots of, because there's a whole community that lives there as well, apart from the Gaddafi family, yeah. who had big houses. But in, in they had lots of um, people who, workers who lived there. They went through all those houses, just trashing them, pulling down cupboards, throwing teddy bears everywhere, pulling out personal things. Didn't appear to be much evidence in those cases of looting, but just destruction, but of the Gaddafi households themselves, they were just pillaging everything, taking whatever, lots of weapons being stolen, um, and just wanton vandalism as well. And of course, the famous incident of the hat, which we'll come back to. But let's just leave the contemporary side of this interview now and go back a little bit. You're African, aren't you? Your roots are African. <laughs> I feel or I felt African for an awful long time because I was uh, brought up in Nigeria. Zambia and I went to school in what was then Rhodesia. I came back to or went back to England when I was uh, 17 and didn't feel at all. I felt very strange, um, Mm. although uh, I am British and I've got a British passport. I felt very African and missed it for an awful long time. But then when I realised I spent more time in England, all my children were born in, in England. I felt as though I couldn't keep on calling myself African, although I feel very bonded to the continent and always wanted to come back here. Which you've done, of course, because after you left Libya, I received an email from you when you got the first contact with the outside world outside of Sky News. You went into Tunisia, uh, you sent me an email, and then from there you went to 
Edinburgh to receive an award and then you scooped up your husband and your four children and you moved to Johannesburg, to Bryanston, Johannesburg and that's now your base. Yeah, yeah, and it feels uh, very familiar even though I've never lived in South Africa. It just feels... Um feels very cosy <laughs> yeah it's cosy is not one of the words that i would describe <laughs> johannesburg as energetic uh, slightly dangerous a little bit edgy a good place to be i think generally as all south africa is provided you uh, obey a few rules but your move into journalism these days as we were discussing again earlier off air very very difficult for young people to get into a profession like this you're an inspiration to lots of people there will be boys and girls out there now saying crikey alex crawford uh, that, that's what I want to do. How difficult is it today for someone to do that? And how did you become a journalist? Well, I felt, first of all, feel very embarrassed when you, you say things like that because it feels odd to hear that being told about myself. I feel as though I've spent most of my life just trying to um, get a few fairly modest, realise a few fairly modest ambitions. One was to be a foreign correspondent, and it took me an awful long time to do it. <laughs> yeah, but let's dispel a few of those uh, myths now. You are famous. I mean, the f you were uh, joking with me earlier on. You said your office, your colleagues in both London and in Joburg are saying, well, what are you doing in Cape Town with a community <laughs> radio station? We've got Harper's looking for a photo shoot. You're supposed to be editing a documentary. You're going to New York in two days' time to receive hopefully an Emmy Award and that sort of thing. So you are famous. But it, it didn't start like that, did it? You started in community radio. Yeah, I, I, I always wanted to be a journalist. Mm. And... Um, and the very first thing I did, well, in fact, my very first work experience was in South Africa. <laughs> okay, I, did, I worked on the Rand Daily Mail, just mm. doing work experience and feeling incredibly overawed. I was still at school. I was about 16, I think. Um, uh, and just thinking, oh, my gosh. Oh, I'd, I'd just love to do this. It was, um, and I went around with the, um, the crime reporter who did three... Uh, and went to see the Soweto police guy, I think, who told her that it had been quite a quiet night because there were only three rapes and two murders that mm. night. And thinking, whoa, this, uh, I, I just thought that it was fantastically exciting. I went into, uh, I got taken on by uh, Thompson Regional Newspapers, started, did a, in my days off, I'd worked on community radio, the hospital radio, and just thought, um, I remember my mother saying, you're never going to make any money like this and, and feeling really um, outraged that anyone w would want to make money because it was such a fun job. And that's, I think that's, if there was any advice I'd give to anyone, is, which is the sort of the advice that my father gave me, which is don't do anything for money. You've got to do it because you really want to do it and you really love it because there's nothing worse than doing a job that you don't like. Yeah, fame and money, of course, have followed your diligence, your hard work, your passion, your enthusiasm for this profession. You've now got to make a decision, I suppose. You've got to say to yourself, well, how far do I go? I, I don't want to get into the argument that has been raging in a couple of the English newspapers about, about sexism, but you're a mother of four, and your children in one of the newspapers said, I'd rather my mum was a dinner lady rather than on, on Sky News. That mm. must tug at your heartstrings occasionally. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's the same for every working mother. I don't think it can be different for any any working mother the world over. That it's always a struggle leaving your children, and mm. they will always want more than you can actually physically give. Even if I was at home all day long, which I do when I'm on the holidays or whatever, they, I can never give them enough. Um, but 
you have to every you know we've reached a stage now my mother has spent most of her life trying to ensure that her two daughters could do what they wanted to do whether that was stay at home and be a homemaker or have a career or work or do whatever be a rocket scientist or an astronaut or whatever would you know are we all going to turn back the clock now and say i think i think um feminism is about deciding what you want to do whatever you think that role is, you know, being at home or pursuing a job. I mm. hope I can be, I hope I can be a role model to my three daughters as well as my son. But I hope, you know, when my girls grow up and, and take up jobs, that they can follow their dreams, whatever, whatever it is, and no one's going to ask them, do you think, you know, or make them feel guilty for leaving their own children just to pursue a dream. Mm. Is sexism alive and well and living in the broadcasting Ooh, and journalism I think industry? So. Don't you? I think so. No, Sky News is particularly good. I mean, there we were sitting this morning uh, having a cup of tea and watching Sky News' Emma Heard reporting on Cameron hmm. and Hague and Sarkozy going into Tripoli. Sky News is particularly good yeah. at splitting the sexes. I think so. Equally down the middle. I, I, I think they are. I think like, uh, things have really changed in the... Um, 20 years or so that I've been uh, with them, that's not just Sky that's changed. The whole world has changed. You know, mm. um, everything's different. When, when I first um, started in broadcasting, you know, there was very little maternity rights. There was very little part-time work for mothers when they first return. There was very little... There was no paternity rights. You know, things have entirely changed in two decades or so in Britain. And for the better... And and now, uh, and now the opportunities are there. It's a fantastic time to be a journalist, <laughs> never mind a female journalist, but great opportunities for, if you can get the opportunities, which is what it's all about, once you get the opportunities, making them pay, there are plenty of really good uh, journalists out there who are women, and we're getting the opportunities now, and now you're noticing. Is it almost an advantage? In recent shows, we've spoken to the biographer of a book called An Inconvenient Youth, the Malema biography, and I suggested to Fiona Ford, the author of that book, that perhaps being a woman was an advantage in gaining access to Malema. Was it an advantage to you in any situations over the last 20 years? And men trusting you, I mean, you've got a colleague called Sam Kiley, who's a kind of beefy bloke, bald-headed, and he looks quite menacing to some people <laughs> and might not be uh, accepted by certain of his intended mm. subjects. I, Do, think it's, you, yeah. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, it's, it's, I've never had any uh, trouble getting an interview. Um, that, that doesn't mean I've been able to get all the people I want to interview, but I've never had any, uh, you know, I've worked in some of the most difficult areas where women are really subjugated, the indigenous women are really subjugated and very repressed. But as a foreign woman, it's, I'm in an entirely different category. And I, uh, I use that to highlight the problems that the indigenous women have, I hope. I think it's a fantastic um, advantage being a woman in many of the, even in the Arab culture, people are generally, the world over, feel less threatened by a woman, feel much, you know, you're dealing mostly with men, even when they're militants or freedom fighters or terrorists, they generally feel much better disposed towards uh, a female and um, less intimidated by a female and also quite respectful that especially if you've gone out of your way or 
gone to difficult areas. I mean, many times when I was in Afghanistan, they would say, uh, you know, we've never had any women here, never mind a foreign woman. Mm. You know, and we want you to know that we do respect you. We're not asking you to cover your head because we disrespect you. But you did, didn't you, in so many cases? Well, a lot of the time I went in in a burqa Mm. because that was a... um, the only way I could get in unnoticed because as soon as they saw a foreigner that would raise alarm bells all over the place and people would be sending out their their spies to alert the various authorities be they Afghan or um, NATO or or uh, army or intelligence agents that a foreigner was there in an area they weren't meant to be so I often went in under a burqa and when they allowed me to take off the burqa I'd put my scarf on because that is the culture they don't, they, you know, if you don't cover yourself, I mean, a lot of the times I'd be wearing huge scarves wrapped around my body and my Afghan producer would say, cover yourself up. And I'd say, I thought I was. And he'd say, no, you can see a little bit of your jeans mm. underneath. Cover, cover. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a different culture. It's, a, it's very different to the way other different cultures react, particularly in the West. You know? How did you feel when the leader of uh, Pakistan was assassinated? Well, was, yeah, I was absolutely stunned um, because she was uh, a very charismatic woman and I'd interviewed her several times, once once before she was uh, leader of the opposition when she was fighting for, uh, she first came to, to Nottingham when I was uh, just a young cub reporter on Radio Nottingham and I was really struck by her. She was very charismatic and very bright um, and very presentable, which also I think helped in in that part of the world. Uh, and mm. um, and I'd interviewed her more recently when she returned to Pakistan, and I thought she represented quite a good future for Pakistan. That's why I asked the question because it seems to be a great step backwards. If she had actually yeah. managed to stay around for a few more years, she knew she was going to be killed. I always got that impression that she knew she I was. I think she she thought. Be assassinated. Yeah, I think she knew. She knew she was in a great deal of danger. Mm. But I, I, I used to think back, following, after seeing the sequence of events, because after she was assassinated, then, um, you know, her, her husband became, is now president. Um, a whole series of unforeseen events happened as a result of this one person's death. And poor old Pakistan has really suffered the whole nation has suffered. The whole world has, actually. It had an impact, trickle effect down on the whole world's security. And, uh, you know, I sort of think if that hadn't happened, how things would have been very different, I think. That podcast was proudly brought to you in association with sharenet.co.za. Visit strictlybusinesspodcast.com and subscribe to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox.